know the feeling, uh, the knot in your throat and the stomach churning and, and, and the tightness in your chest, right, and the sweat in your palms and when the knee is bouncing up and down under the table rapidly, the worry about what's next, the fear of being misunderstood. This is the pleasant atmosphere of conflict. Conflict, we all must face it or we spend our lives dodging it. But conflict shouldn't surprise us. As Christians, we believe the world is fallen. Uh, People are stubborn. Perspectives are limited. Relationships are complicated. And so conflict is understandable on this side of Adam's rebellion. And often it's unavoidable. But that doesn't mean we're without hope. As we continue in Acts, we encounter a conflict between leading men in the church. And this is a new obstacle that we've encountered in the book of Acts. Uh, So far, we've watched the mission of Jesus advance in the face of obstacles without and obstacles within. Satanic powers, enemy persecution, ethnic pride, uh, idolatrous paganism. These outside obstacles have threatened the gospel's advance, but again and again, with no success. And yet far more dangerous have been those obstacles within the church. Moral rebellion. A a married couple we see in chapter 5 lies to the Holy Spirit about their possessions. Uh, Practical needs. Some widows find themselves neglected in the daily distribution. This is Acts 6. Theological confusion. How does the law function with all these Gentiles coming in? That was was chapter 15. But in each case, we've witnessed the Lord working and the gospel prevailing, uh, the mission advancing, and the church growing. Now, will all of that gospel prevailing activity continue when two of the church's leading men butt heads? And if all that gospel prevailing activity continues in the face of this intense conflict, what hope might God's Word be offering us this morning when we face similar things? Before answering those questions, let's read our passage beginning in in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas... Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The passage begins with a concern for strong, healthy, maturing churches. 
a concern for strong, healthy, maturing churches. Both Paul and Barnabas share this concern. In chapters 13 and 14, they complete a mission through Cyprus, uh, up through Perga, on to Antioch, and then they come over to Lystra, Der- Derby, uh, Iconium, and Derby, and then they go all the way back again. There's a map on the screen uh, to, of their missionary journey. They they preach the gospel. They disciple believers. They plant churches. So what you're seeing there, the red line is when they go out. The blue line is when they come back. So, some time has passed, though, since they've returned to Antioch. In chapter 14, verse 28, it says that they spent no little time with the disciples. So, we're talking about a great deal of time that they spent in Antioch. Besides that, they, they also travel to the debate in the, at the Jerusalem Council and then back. And each of those trips take A couple of months plus others are coming and going. And so we know we're looking at another four to six months on top of the time they had spent in Antioch. You know, and they don't have phones and Skype and Facebook Messenger. So they really don't know how things are going. So Paul says, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So each one of these cities you're you're seeing on on the map there. Missionary work includes great concern for strong, healthy, maturing churches. You'll find this all over the letters of your New Testament. Romans 1.8, I long to see you, Paul says, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 1 Corinthians 4.17, that's why I sent you Timothy. To remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul couldn't get there, but I'm sending you somebody else. 2 Corinthians 11.28 There is the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. Colossians 1.28 We proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So, presenting all Everybody in all these churches as mature in Christ is the goal. The apostles don't just make converts, they make disciples. They gather believers into churches and they labor to see the churches thriving in Christ. Part of laboring for their maturity includes delivering the results of the Jerusalem council that we just read that we've read about in in chapter 15. They draft a letter, remember? And, and this, this letter instructs all the Gentile churches on how the law functions and, and how they should live in relation to the idolatry around them. Well, this letter, if you look at verse 23 of chapter 15, this letter was to go to Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Okay, but to this point, only Antioch benefits from the letter. They've still got to get the letter out to these other churches in Syria and Cilicia. And so this is part of the reason Paul wants to go and revisit them, right? Come on, Barnabas, let's let's check on all the churches. Let's get this letter to them that they might benefit from it too. But then we encounter a conflict. 
a conflict. And this conflict originates over whether Mark should accompany them on the next missionary journey. Now, let's work through the backstory with Mark and pay attention here because it'll, it'll influence the way we understand uh, the conflict as well as the decision in, uh, in verse 39. Uh, we first meet Mark at chapter 12, verse 25. Uh, he returns from Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas. And Mark then assists Paul. Go to, go to chapter 13 in your Bibles real quick uh, of Acts. As we find Mark assisting Paul and Barnabas in their missionary work through Cyprus. Uh, This is chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of of God in the synagogue of the Jews... And they had John, well, that, that's Mark, John, whose name is also Mark. They had John to assist them. And they went together through the whole island. That's verse 6. Now drop down to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them. So John, or Mark, he he hangs around. He hangs in there for the mission in Cyprus, from one side of the island to the other side of the island. But then he left. And and we don't really get the reason why, only that he did. Now, the way Paul describes it in chapter 15, verse 38, it could mean that he apostatized. Right? The same language appears in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, about the seed that's sown among the rocks. And these folks, they believe for a little while, but when the time of testing comes, it says they, they fall away. It's the same language that Paul uses here. It could mean that, but it, that's not the only way it appears in the New Testament. It could also mean he simply didn't find himself cut out for that particular work, and so he just left it. Not that he left the faith, but that he left them. And whatever the case, months have passed since Mark left, maybe even years. And at some point, Mark returns to Antioch. Silas is also back with him. And Barnabas wants Mark to assist them on this next journey. Paul doesn't like it. Verse 37 of chapter 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, But Paul thought best, or some translations have, he kept insisting not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, to be clear, this is not a conflict over Mark's morality or Mark's theology or Barnabas's theology. You'll find some scholars thinking that this is just carryover from the situation in Galatians 2 where where Barnabas acts hypocritically and and so they speculate, you know, Paul must still be really upset about the whole ordeal. 
But that's going well beyond what the text actually says. This isn't a conflict over morality or theology. On those matters, they agree. So we can't use this to support the idea of just agreeing to disagree on matters of theology and morality. This conflict is over strategy, or what's most prudent, maybe between what's good and what's best. What is best for the missionary work? Barnabas thinks Mark's an asset, and it might also help us to note that Mark is Barnabas's cousin. That's Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul questions whether Mark is fit for this particular journey, and Luke is very real about the nature of their conflict, right? He doesn't whitewash the matter. He's verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement. It's intense. It's portrayed negatively. All the feelings that come with conflict are here when you read the text. And it's between two of the church's best men. Well, will the churches end up getting strengthened? Or will these guys just keep butting heads so much that they neglect the mission? Well, it's rather interesting that Luke never takes a side here. I mean, he's the one that includes the conflict. Wouldn't a little comment or two be nice? Something like, well, Barnabas certainly made a good case, but Paul was ultimately right here. Mark really wasn't ready. Or, well, Paul got a bit fussy and exaggerated the matter a bit. Ultimately, Barnabas was right. Give Mark another chance. But we don't get anything like that. We're just left hanging. Which means Luke has a different purpose for including it. We're not supposed to figure that out. We're supposed to see something else. Now, one purpose he has is apologetic. I mean, his realism lends itself to greater credibility, and I'll say more about that in a minute. Another purpose is literary. I mean, for the next three chapters, what does he cover? He covers the mission of Paul and Silas. And it's not like he can just kind of wince at how they got together. But the far greater purpose here is to display the Lord Jesus' sovereign, gracious care for His churches despite the failings of men. That is what the book of Acts is about. It is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. If you remember, right from the the get-go, chapter 1, He tells us that... He has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the gospel of Mark until the day when he was taken up. And the idea is that Acts is part two. And this is what Jesus kept doing. So his greater purpose here is to display the Lord Jesus' sovereign, gracious work and care for his churches despite the failings of men, despite the limited perspectives of men, and despite the stubborn, we must do it my way, insistence of men. And that leads us now to the compromise they make to divide the work. The compromise they make to divide the work. Look at verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement 
so that, or with the result that, they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departing, departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what was their original concern? Verse 36, to return and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaim the word of the Lord. Notice that they remain committed to that original concern. But the way the conflict happens to work out is not with one team covering all the cities, but with two. Two teams covering all the cities. Some of those cities are in Cyprus. And if you recall, Mark actually remained committed to the work from one side of the island of Cyprus to the other. He assisted Paul and Barnabas. He didn't leave until Paul and Barnabas advanced to Virgo. What a kindness of the Lord that we see here. Barnabas takes Mark to visit the churches in Cyprus where Mark had already been faithful before. He had proved himself faithful before. More than that, Cyprus is where Barnabas grew up. So we learn that from chapter 4, verse 36. So it seems to be a most suitable context for them to serve. And if you read the rest of Acts, Paul never returns to Cyprus again. He goes around Cyprus, but he never returns to Cyprus. He knows Barnabas and Mark got the cities covered. On top of that, Paul gets Silas, and they go to Syria and Cilicia to strengthen the churches. Now, this is rather significant because Silas was one of the guys that Jerusalem originally sent to deliver the letter in Antioch, remember? Right? He was one of the chosen men to give further legitimacy to the letter. Like, we're going to send this guy with him because we want, we want them to know that Jerusalem backs this letter. So if Paul is going to some of the places in Syria and Cilicia where this letter is addressed, Silas is one of the guys you want. And the Lord works it out so that he goes with Paul. In other words, even though Paul and Barnabas disagree to the point of separation, the Lord still works it out in the end to accomplish his purpose, and he does so with utmost carefulness. Even more... The broader witness of the New Testament shows the Lord also worked in great ways between Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. Uh, You will see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul still speaks of Barnabas in respectful ways as a partner in ministry. Uh, With Mark, why don't you go with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God... And they have been a comfort to me. Isn't that something? You know, Paul could have kept Mark at arm's length and 
And Mark could have written Paul off for not considering him back in, in Antioch. And yet, we see here that the Lord has worked such that Mark becomes a comfort to Paul while he's in prison. Or turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul is in prison. He is at the end of his life. And he says this. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. He is very useful to me for ministry. Again, in Philemon 24, he calls Mark a fellow worker. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that Mark authors one of the Gospels that's in our New Testament. So this separation wasn't one in which they remained bitter rivals. It wasn't a separation where the grace of God never worked anything new and more. Rather, the separation became the occasion for the grace of God to shine even more despite the weaknesses of men. Now, that doesn't mean we pursue separation. But only that separation between men didn't ultimately compromise the gracious purposes of God, which we are seeing unfold throughout the book of Acts. Here we see God's gracious work in the midst of conflict. And the hope is that His gracious work continues to prevail as the church commends Paul and Silas to the grace of God. If the mission of the church is to succeed, it will only do so by the grace of the Lord Jesus. We're utterly dependent on Him to work despite our weaknesses and our sin. Isn't this what we see in the cross, ultimately? God graciously working for our good despite our weaknesses and our sin. We raged against God. We raged against each other. We were enemies of God and enemies of each other. If there was ever a conflict raging, it is the cosmic conflict that is caused by our sin. And yet the Lord graciously works in and through it all to bring us a Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave Himself to reconcile us to God and to one another. And Jesus rose from the dead to eventually bring us into the new heavens and the new earth where there is total peace and no conflict. If the greatest cosmic conflict is no match for God's sovereign grace, then neither are these petty conflicts that happen now. He will achieve His purpose. So what does this passage mean for us? Well, I've got six takeaways for you to consider. Number one, Luke's realism supports that Acts is a trustworthy account. Luke's realism supports that Acts is a trustworthy account. Now, there are other things that lend itself to Acts' credibility, but this is one of them. Sometimes, uh, historians in the, around the time that Luke was was writing. 
Historians would bypass things that could reflect more negatively on the movement that they were a part of. Okay? I'll give you an example. Josephus. All right? Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century. But his history writing becomes incredibly biased when things got tense with Rome. you got Bible scholars always quoting from Josephus. You need to read him carefully because it is biased history, especially when things get tense with Rome. In his work Antiquities, he exaggerates the good qualities of Jews while ignoring their historical failures. And he does it to promote the Jewish cause, to promote the Jewish agenda, kind of win the public over. Like, Jews are the best. That's why he writes his history. That's not how Luke operates. Okay? Yeah, he does point to the ideal and what the church should be and ought to be. But he doesn't ignore when the church doesn't live up to that ideal. I mean, we see that with Ananias and Sapphira. We see it with the case of the widows in Acts 6 and the theological confusion they're wrestling with. And we see it here. He's very real about the obstacles that arise within. And then he uses them to glorify the grace of God and the power of Jesus to preserve his church and then also to help us learn from the negative examples. Good biography will do that. It will commend the positive, but it will also help us learn from the negative. And the good biography in Luke's day did the same thing. What can we learn from the positive? Well, that brings me to number two. Make strong, healthy, maturing churches a priority. Make strong, healthy, maturing churches a priority. Paul and Barnabas share this concern. God shares this concern as we see him guiding the apostles throughout Acts. And we should have this concern. Do you have this this, this kind of desire that you see in the apostles throughout the New Testament? This, this, I've got to see how my brothers and sisters are doing. Are they walking with Christ? Is he still precious to them? What are their needs? How can I help? What can I do? Look, that doesn't mean you need to be directly involved with every church that you know of. But it should at least be the concern you have for this one. The one that you've covenanted with and committed to. Are you seeing this church on to maturity? Do we share this concern for each other? I've got to see how they're doing. Or do we let weeks and months go by with little investment, with little concern, with minimal attention to the care structures, you know, like we agreed to, like corporate worship and care group and members meetings? There are people in this body hurting and some needing discipleship and others needing just a friend who consistently cares. I've talked to some sisters. You know, kids get sick. And when kids get sick, a lot of times mom stays home. And weeks go by where mom hears from nobody. 
Because she's at home this week. And then the next kid gets it, so she's there the next week. And the next week she comes to nursery. And next week she's gone from care group. No texts. No emails. No phone calls. That's what I meant by people hurting. Don't assume that's just going to happen. Don't assume the elders can just handle that all. We can't. We can do some. But we're limited. We need you involved too. We need you on the phone and you face to face and you seeking the Lord and you holding each other accountable and you speaking truth to each other. Is this care on our hearts? Got to see how they are. Got to come to the phone and call them. Write them a letter. Make strong, healthy, maturing churches a priority. We can learn also here from the negative. God uses broken and limited people to achieve His mission. God uses broken and limited people to achieve His mission. As Derek Thomas puts it, the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Sometimes we get this idea like the apostles were some kind of super Christians who were always strong and never erred and hovered two inches off the ground with a halo on their head where they walk. But passages like this correct that notion. God uses limited and broken people. You are limited. We are broken. But praise God that that does not disqualify us from the work. In His grace, He chooses to save and He chooses us to participate in His work. He doesn't need us whatsoever. But He chooses to use us still. And at the end of the day, we get the joy of belonging to His kingdom despite our failures. And He gets the glory for advancing the kingdom despite our limitations and our brokenness. That's the whole point. Of the church. It's full of broken people. So that at the end of the day. We get the grace. And he gets the glory. So don't be afraid. If you're here today. You're not part of a church. And you're thinking. I can't be part of this church. Because I ain't got it all together. We don't have it all together either. But we know grace. And we have a gracious God. That lavishes upon us often. So don't let that keep you from joining this body. Something else we see here is a picture of God's sovereignty in using apparent setbacks to carry out His purpose. In using apparent setbacks to carry out His purpose. Again, Luke portrays the disagreement negatively. But in the end, God accomplishes His purpose. One team becomes two in accomplishing the shared goal of strengthening the churches. And we've seen similar aspects to God's sovereignty as Ben has walked with us through 1 Samuel. I mean, Saul is gross, and the people are terrible too, and yet God's grace delivers them again and again. He gives the Spirit. He's still at work in the worst of times. His will won't ultimately be foiled by our failures. 
Redeemer, for those of you who have been here long enough, you've experienced a measure of setbacks. And from our limited perspective, you've wanted things to look different from time to time. And you've wished we didn't encounter some of the things we encountered. And you've wished friends stayed and didn't leave. And you've thought it better. Others stuck it out here in Fort Worth, but some decided to move away to other cities for, for, for ministry. And sometimes you've even encountered conflict through it all. But the grace of God has never failed us. In fact, the Lord has used many of those occasions to reveal sin and pride and lovelessness and to prune away in each of us those branches that were not bearing fruit. The conflicts became occasions where the Lord's grace prevailed such that the weak, our weaknesses were felt and our idols were exposed and our pride was cut down. Again, that's not to say, you know, we just throw up our hands and, and go our separate ways at the slightest whiff of conflict. No, the apostles repeatedly tell us to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to be of the same mind in Christ, to agree with one another in the Lord. All I'm saying is that even when conflict does rise, even when it seems like we're at stalemate in meetings, and even when we choose to pursue the mission with a little different strategy than others would prefer, we can still trust the Lord to preserve His church and to finish the mission well in His timing. Eckhart Schnabel says this. If you want to know how to spell his name, write S and then sneeze. And you get it. Eckhart Schnabel. He says this. While disagreements may be painful and the resulting separation less than ideal, God's sovereign plan can still be at work provided that the reasons for the separation are not personal prestige and power, but considerations connected with the proclamation of the gospel. That leads us to number five. We must take responsibility as well in this and never allow our conflicts to compromise the mission. Never allow our conflicts to compromise the mission. Barnabas and Paul eventually reach a compromise because they share the same goal. And that goal involved revisiting all the churches that they planted. Now, while they still couldn't agree on Mark at the time, they could agree that visiting the churches was of utmost importance. And they found a way to do it. And God used it for the good of the churches in Cyprus and the churches in Syria and Cilicia. We must pursue hearty agreement on matters of theology and morality, but we should be careful not to become so consumed with differences over lesser matters that we end up neglecting what God has made explicit. Our care for each other in the church and our mission to reach the world for Christ. Far be it from us to bicker over matters of less importance while countless multitudes perish without Christ. Among the seven things the Lord hates in Proverbs 5.19 is this, he who sows discord among the brethren. We can't allow conflict to sow discord, bitterness, rivalry, hatred, jealousy. We must work towards those solutions that will best benefit the gospel and respect and represent Christ. 
We are for Christ's kingdom, not our own. And so when you encounter a conflict, ask. Both parties need to be asking whether we're keeping the main mission of Christ central. We're holding this out. We're we're both trying to get there. We agree there. We're both trying to get there. And we work. We ask whether our insistence is so all-consuming that it's actually undermining the mission because we have to keep ourselves on top. Because we have to keep, keep ourselves looking like the know-it-all. No, no, no. We need to humble ourselves before each other and together count Christ's kingdom greater than our own. And finally, make the grace of the Lord Jesus your hope in moving forward. Make the grace of the Lord Jesus your hope in moving forward. After the conflict here between Paul and Barnabas, we see in verse 40, the church commends Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord. Now based on uh, verse 11 and verse 26, that's referring to the Lord Jesus there. The point is that our Savior is alive. He's risen from the dead. He is the risen Lord Jesus and He continues to give grace to His church. We must make His grace our hope in moving forward. No matter what we've experienced in the past and how we've walked through it, grace is our hope in moving forward. We need His grace for life. We need His grace for godliness. We need His grace for showing charity to each other. We need His grace for believing the best when misunderstandings occur. We need His grace for words that are clear and true. We need His grace for patience when folks don't do things the the way we think they ought to be done. We need grace for everything in this body. This separation may have been something Luke wished never had happened. But he's quick to highlight that there's grace for the future. Walking through conflict doesn't mean that it's just all over. It's just all a waste. It's just all not worth it. Wrong. There's always more grace for those who are in Christ. Even in the disagreement here and the resulting compromise, God's grace was poured out for both teams And their lasting impact for the gospel is felt even today. Mark wrote a gospel. Paul finds him to be one of his best men. There's more grace for you and me too, brothers and sisters. The good work the Lord began in us, He will bring to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise from Philippians 1. So we need to set our hope there together and pray for more grace to sustain us in the mission so that we finish it well together. Why don't we pray?